welcome to the Ultimate Supplier Management Podcast from Apex Analytics. This is an audio version of a recent webinar we had with Wells Fargo called Not If, But When, How to Stop Payment Fraud Even If Your Systems Have Been Hacked. It featured Beth Probst and Anil Kilnani, both fraud prevention experts at Wells Fargo, and also Danny Thompson, SVP of Market and Product Strategy here at Apex Analytics. They discussed all of the bad data points around fraud and how to prevent it with Apex Portal and Early Warning. There's also 25 minutes of Q&A that we discuss people's real problems today. As always, you can download the slides in the episode notes. With that, enjoy the show. Absolutely. So a tool like Account Validation Services becomes very powerful for our customers in assessing risk. And as you mentioned earlier with COVID that hit us, you know, what has it been just about a year ago, we've seen a significant increase in our customers coming to us concerned about fraud. The other thing that we hear from customers is trying to make sure that they may be worried about financial returns or trying to comply with not just new requirements that are going into effect later this year that require any consumer web debit to be authorized before it initiated a payment the first time. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to everyone who's attending our webinar that is hosted by Apex Analytics with our partners from Wells Fargo Bank. The webinar is not if, but when, how to stop payment fraud, even if your systems have been hacked. And I can't wait to share with you some really interesting statistics and stories that have been accumulated over the past year in the dynamic world of payment fraud and some really cool new controls that have been introduced, really collaborating with clients and banks and service providers. My name is Danny Thompson, and I'm SVP of Market and Product Strategy at Apex Analytics. Just uh, an I'll have my friends from Wells Fargo introduce themselves in just a second. But one thing I want to say is that this webinar is being recorded and will be shared after the fact with everyone so you can view it again. And also, we'll move pretty quickly through the presentation and then open things up for Q&A. And we may even take questions as we're moving along. My colleague, Matthew from Apex, is going to be managing Q&A. Just if you have any questions, raise them in the chat box in WebEx. So just raise your questions as we move along and he'll raise them as appropriate. So that should make for a pretty interesting conversation as we move along. So again, at this moment, let's just take a minute. Anil and Beth, why don't you introduce yourselves? Thank you, Danny. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anil Kilnani, Fraud Prevention Consultant with Wells Fargo's Fraud Prevention Office team. We're the group within our wholesale bank that detects and prevents fraud with our customers' outgoing payment transactions. We also assist with the recoveries of any funds that may have gone out of a customer's account due to fraud. And we provide fraud education training to our customers and internally within the bank. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. This is Beth Probst. I am a product manager at Wells Fargo, primarily responsible for our account validation service. It is an informational tool that can help our customers assess risk prior to initiating payments. I'm in my 26th year at Wells Fargo. I've been primarily working with products associated with tax and fraud prevention. And thanks for having us. It's our pleasure to have you. So it was about a year ago when I read just an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal about what the latest up and coming shared services domain was. And you know, just like AP and AR and other financial processes, organizations were pulling together resources to increase efficiency and drive best practices so they could be more effective in a new process area. And if you're on this call, you understand what a difference moving something into a shared services organization can make to its effectiveness and its scalability and the impact on the business. So question is, what was that new process area? That process area was committing 
fraud. And that's right. This is the latest domain being moved into shared services environments. Really, the article talked about this as no longer a situation where, you know, it's one person contacting another person and that second person isn't paying close enough attention and gets duped. These fraud attacks are really coordinated and just some details around how that's happening. You know, Traditional AP fraud processes are continuing, but there's this new level of sophistication that's being brought to bear that means AP and master data maintenance teams have to be more vigilant than ever and new and better controls are needed to protect your company. For example, in this article, they describe operations working out of an office in Lagos, Nigeria, and they were organized with managers and supervisors sharing among the teams what was working, what wasn't working, targeting AP and payroll. The operations would make multiple contacts with multiple resources contacting maybe an AP help desk, talking with different people in the AP department or in the payroll departments, just gathering little pieces of information in order to then, whenever a payment is coming due, they would be armed with all of the information they needed to sound like or seem like they actually were the supplier. Get the bank account changed in time for a bank transfer to occur and then successfully make that bank account transfer. So, you know, they're shifting from this idea of just spoofing a CEO's email address to actually not only doing that and these coordinated attacks on AP, but they are now hacking the email accounts of suppliers and sending messages from the email accounts of suppliers so that the bank account change request is coming in from a valid contact address. So the AP department or payroll department that's updating the master data feels like the request is a valid one, but it's not. So it's a pretty scary world and requires us to do more than we ever have before. And I know, Anil, you have some statistics to share around this, given that your team is kind of on the front lines of this work. Absolutely, Danny. So the numbers that you can see on the screen, those are from a survey that the Association of Financial Professionals, or AFP, did at the beginning of last year that really highlight the prevalence of the fraud problem. From that survey, we see that almost 8 out of 10 of the organizations that responded to the survey said that they had experienced either attempted or actual fraud. 75%, which is almost close to 8 out of 10, of these organizations said that they had experienced business email compromise or imposter fraud. And of that number, over half, 54% said that they had suffered a financial loss as a result of those imposter fraud incidents. And that number that you see towards the center right of the screen, $26.2 billion, that, according to the FBI, is the total dollar amount that has been lost to imposter fraud over a three-year period. And I will add that this survey, like I said, was done at the beginning of last year. These are basically pre-pandemic numbers. As you may know, we saw a huge spike in business email compromise fraud that was themed around the pandemic. So our feeling is that when the AFP does the same survey again this year, and it is expected in the next month or so, these numbers are going to be significantly higher. And one additional point that I do want to make is that when it comes to the departments or areas within organizations that get targeted by the fraudsters, they go after any group within an organization that is involved in any way with the disbursement of funds. But based on the AFP survey, if there is one area that gets targeted the most frequently, that would have to be the accounts payable team. Second up is the treasury group. Again, they go after any team, any department that is involved in sending out money. You know, the large companies are paying out billions each year and intercepting that. Those payments are provide a real opportunity. And really, these stats suggest that more or less every company is being impacted by fraud. And 
certainly every company has fraud controls in place. So what we're finding is that the traditional controls aren't working the way they used to be. Uh, they're still important and are catching some cases of fraud, but some are getting through. And that can be embarrassing for a company. And so what we don't see is a lot of public, uh, we don't see nearly as much public admission of this sort of fraud as we know is occurring, interacting with our clients and other companies. So what we have to do is try and share information in other ways. And certainly within an organization, it's important to share information about fraud attempts so that the internal team is continuously learning based on those attempts that are happening either in their own departments or in other departments. So you've got some more statistics, Anil. Absolutely. So from this slide, you know, actually, before I get into these numbers, what I do want to stress is that for any organization, Fraud prevention should be a very layered approach that should involve multiple strategies. You know, and based on that EFP, actually the AFP survey, we see that organizations are indeed implementing you know, multiple strategies, multiple steps in order to combat business email compromise fraud. And if there's one area that we see you know, the 80%, 80% of organizations are really focusing on making sure that they are adequately training their end users on fraud education, you know, including how to spot imposter fraud, phishing attempts, just to make sure that they are constantly staying vigilant, you know, with those types of fraud. We're also seeing that 70% of organizations based on the AFP survey have either implemented new company policies or strengthened existing ones. For example, around now requiring phone verifications of any requests they receive for vendor bank account changes. 65% are have a policy now to confirm any payment requests that they receive, typically by executing a callback to an authorized contact. And 61% have strengthened some of their internal controls. For example, some organizations are no longer accepting emailed payment requests. They have to be submitted via special forms which have been developed for this purpose. Yeah, and these controls have been really tried and true for many years. But we're finding that what we're hearing from companies is that in some cases, these controls aren't working so well. And a, a couple of examples of this, you know, back when we were all in the office together, if you had your AP help desk working together and someone called one person on the AP help desk team and then called another, they could be sitting next to each other and just overhear the conversations and pick up on the idea, on the fact that, that someone is probing the organization. But when you're in a remote working environment, that overhearing another conversation just doesn't really work so well. So it's important for your teams to be trained around what to do in these situations. Do you need some sort of logging mechanism so that people know how many times a particular supplier has contacted the help desk to ask about information you know, whenever a new call comes in? Go ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to add along that, Danny. I think that employees need to know that every employee should question every new request to change an account number. Every time they see in a new account number, they should feel empowered that they should ask those questions and follow through and, and not feel like they're being an impediment to the process. Or if I question this, my manager is going to get upset with me because it really starts at that front line of trying to prevent fraud. Yeah, the classic example of that is an email coming from the CEO or CFO saying, send this wire today or a plant's going to be shut down. And those are way more often than not fraudulent requests. So someone shouldn't be afraid to go back to the CFO or CEO and ask the question through a different channel than the request came in. Yeah. And with business email compromise, it gets more complicated because you don't have to worry only about the security of your own company's email systems, but really any breach of a supplier's email system can compromise your own controls. Because if you rely on emails for any part of your master data change process, then you're vulnerable. So it's not enough just to say we're not going to accept bank account change requests by email. Because if your control is a callback process, 
what if you were to accept contact phone number changes by email or contact name changes by email? If the fraudster gains control of the supplier's email account, they can change the contact phone number or a contact name, and then your whole control process is compromised. The number that I had seen around BEC attacks is that they went up 300% just in the early days of the coronavirus crisis at the beginning of last year. So just this continued onslaught of business email compromise and other controls just shows that the historical controls aren't good enough. So in the Apex portal, we've been working with our clients and with our banking partners to really address these fraud issues. And there's some ways that we address security that whether you have Apex Portal or not, you should try to deploy in any solution that you have and do it as quickly as you can. First of all, our portal clients never accept bank account change requests by phone or by email. They don't even accept forms that have been filled out and signed and submitted by email because we found that even with those sorts of forms, a fraudster can gain access to the form and complete it. So our clients only accept change requests submitted by authorized users from suppliers who've been invited to use the secure portal. And that really just cuts down the channels that fraudsters can use to submit a fraudulent request. And it also makes it impossible for insiders to submit a request to change a bank account unless somehow they break through the supplier security. But what we found, given that user IDs and passwords can be compromised through email systems, just that isn't enough. So the portal also monitors login activity and activity patterns to identify suspicious activity. So for example, if someone logs in and requests a bank account change over the weekend or outside office hours, that raises a red flag in the system and creates a subsequent review before the change can take place. Or if someone logs in from an unexpected location like a hotel or a cafe or cities and states or countries that don't match the location of the supplier, that raises a red flag. We monitor for prohibited or suspicious IP locations. So we've got the ability to block supplier logins and updates from specific IP address ranges that we know are suspicious or countries that really have no business updating our vendor master. Nigeria is a good example. Or we can add specific countries to suspect lists, which will trigger additional validations. And then we also trigger notifications to the supplier's official contacts on file so that we can just keep them informed if someone's trying to break into their account. Another control is known vendors and known bank accounts. If a supplier is doing business with multiple Apex clients and the bank account is being changed to a brand new bank account for one of our clients, then that tells us that there might be some fraud going on. And so we can raise that up as a warning as well. And of course, in the case of there could be cases where the supplier contact themselves attempt to commit a fraud. Maybe they've been fired from the company and their user ID hasn't been deactivated yet, or someone gets past all of the other controls we described. We felt like we needed another ultimate level of control. And in the last year, we found what we consider to be this game-changing ultimate control, and that's real-time integration with the Wells Fargo Account Validation Service to confirm that the supplier actually owns the bank account that the bank account number is being changed to and that future remittances are going to be made to. So Beth, just tell us a little bit about the Account Validation Service and how it works. Sure. Thank you, Danny. So our account validation service is a risk information tool. And so it's providing our customers with information about the financial health, as well as the ownership of an account prior to initiating payment. And so with fraud, you're absolutely want to be able to make sure that you're paying the right person. So if you think that you're paying Bob's bike shop, you want to make sure that that's the information that the financial institution has on record associated with that account. So of course, this information is, is information we're providing to you as an organization, and you make those determinations 
conversations about whether to accept it. This becomes one more tool that you can wick around with the many other things that we've talked about today to try to prevent those bad events from happening. It's not a payment guarantee, but it gets in to try to help you reduce those number of bad events from happening. Yeah. While the AVS solution is a US-centric solution in our APEX portal, we're doing the same sorts of things in other countries. So we have bank account ownership validation in India and Sweden, and we're working toward that level of validation in other countries as well as we find sources like the Wells Fargo solution to validate bank account ownership in those other countries. So there's some specific use cases for AR and AP where this service makes a big difference. Absolutely. So a tool like account validation services becomes very powerful for our customers in assessing risk. And as you mentioned earlier with COVID that hit us, you know, what has it been just about a year ago? We've seen a significant increase in our customers coming to us concerned about fraud. The other thing that we hear from customers is trying to make sure that they're, they may be worried about financial returns or trying to comply with not just new requirements that are going into effect later this year that require any consumer web debit to be authorized before it initiated a payment the first time. So we really see for this tool use cases across both payables and receivables. You know, on the receivable side, you're really concerned about, is the account open? Is there a risk of financial returns? And on the payable side, you're really, you're wanting to make sure you're paying the right entity. So we have customers that come to us and they're using it across multiple use cases to be able to help them with their overall risk mitigation at their organizations. And the engine, I know you probably are wondering, well, where does all this information come? And the engine that sits behind our account validation services is Early Warning Services National Shared Database. This is a collaborative bank resource that's been in existence for 26 years. It initially started out as a, and still is, it's banks contributing data to one another, but it was initially solely just for those banks to share information to reduce risk, primarily beginning with the deposit line transactions. And it's grown over time as more and more entities have had concerns about either a risk of, I've got an administrative return, I'm not going to hit the right account, or I'm concerned about a financial return, or I want to reduce fraud. So over time, that has grown and we now, non-banks are allowed to use the service. It is owned by seven partner banks, including Wells Fargo, but it has over 2,600 financial institutions that are providing data on a daily basis to be able to provide risk information for our inquirers. That's great. And so the way this solution works with changes that are happening inside the Apex portal is when a supplier user goes in and requests a bank account change, then in real time, uh, before the bank account change goes through the approval workflow process or makes it into the ERP, then in real time, the portal triggers an API call to the Wells Fargo solution, and we get back the information around, does the account ownership match? Is the account even in the early warning database? Is the account at a zero balance? Is it a brand new account, which could be suspicious? And is the entity type accurate? And does it match the supplier? So, you know, is the bank account set up for an individual, but you're paying a corporation? And all of those sorts of flags come back and are presented to the approver in an approval workflow. And if everything matches, there's a check mark. If anything is amiss, then there's a red X and the user can drill down and see more details about what exception there might be and then can take action. Or if for some reason the bank, not every bank account is included in the service. So if there's a, a bank account that the supplier is trying to use that is not covered by the service, then that comes up and then additional controls can be executed just to do a little bit more due diligence on those accounts since we haven't been able to confirm the ownership. So that's the way the solution works with the Apex portal. And the solution is also offered as part of the smart VM solution, which is used just to evaluate and cleanse and enrich existing vendor master data. So if you don't have the Apex portal, you can use it with your master data otherwise. And there's an API as well. So maybe you have your own homegrown portal solution. We can call this early warning service through an API that's integrated with your own portal solution if if that's what you would like to do. All right. So, Anil or Beth, do you have any more comments before we move to Q&A? Nothing for me. No, I'm good as well. Thank you. 
Great, great. Okay, so everyone, you'll see a poll that is going to pop up in the WebEx. If you would like to get any more information around this solution or any other solutions or some reports that we have to offer, feel free to respond to the polling question and also submit your questions and we'll start taking your questions now. Matthew, do you have some? I'll give everyone a minute to fill out this poll. But Danny, you talked a little bit about Portal and SmartVM and how that someone could use this type of service. Could you speak to the time it takes to implement the time it takes that someone could start using this either in a scenario that's today, maybe there's an urgent concern or in, you know, a larger portal deployment. Yeah. So our Apex portal supplier registration module is set up to capture everything that a buying organization might want to have about a supplier before they create their relationship with the supplier. So everything from addresses, tax IDs, bank accounts, insurance forms, tax forms, diversity codes, certifications, any risk questionnaires that they might want to ask the supplier to complete, etc. And it can take a while to get that entire process configured to the customer's own, own business rules. The average implementation for a single country and single instance of an ERP is four to six months. But because people typically have an immediate need to start introducing controls, we make a what we call our proxy registration solution available within two weeks. And what that allows, it's not the supplier-facing version that the supplier interacts with, but the supplier can fill out a form with their information and send that into the vendor maintenance team. And the vendor maintenance team would enter the information in the proxy registration form and all of the validations that would normally happen, happen in that forms and the approval process happens in that solution. So within two weeks, they can be up and running with all of the validations of addresses and minority codes and banking information. There's a contracting period before that, but once all everything is signed and approved, then it's one to two weeks. Great. And someone actually has a question about this poll. So, Danny, I'll let you answer. What is a recovery audit? <laughs> so, a recovery audit is really bread and butter. Apex and Analytics has been doing this for 30 years. And so, what companies do is for every billion dollars in spend, we find that companies have about $2 million in overpayments that they've made. These are cases where they may have paid an invoice twice or Maybe they return some goods and AP already paid the invoice and AP didn't go back and get a credit. So what companies do is they give us their vendor data and about one to two years of transaction data. And we use our advanced analytics and experienced auditors to find cases where those overpayments have been made. And we go to the suppliers and we get that money back. And so the audit part is looking for the errors and the overpayments and the recovery part is actually retrieving the money from suppliers. Great. And so we actually have uh, several questions about portal, but I want to go to Beth. There's a question that says, what vendor information is needed in the account validation service in order to get information back to confirm the bank um, account status and ownership? Sure. Sure. So it starts with the account number, routing transit number of the vendor, the vendor's name. And then you could also inquire upon a tax ID or an address for those additional verification points. Okay. And another question came in, and this is for everyone. When this type of platform is not in place, what do you see as an industry best practice for confirming changes to bank details? And I think it speaks to People might not have this or definitely don't have this probably for the people viewing this webinar. What can they do now? You know, what's the best practice that they can uh, do? And I know, Danny, you just spoke about utilizing smart VM uh, that they can quickly implement. But, you know, what's the best practice that they can leverage now? So I'll ask Danny first, and then maybe Beth and Neil, you can comment also. Yeah, I think Neil spoke to a lot of this. One is... 
have a form that asks very specific information that hopefully only the supplier knows. So that could be things like, what's the prior bank account? What's your current bank account number? What was your last payment? Things like that. Never take a bank account change request by phone or, and ideally not by email either. But if you have to accept a bank account change request by either of those, then make sure you independently find contact information for the appropriate people that you would think would be responsible for that that sort of decision and reach out to them. And so that could be finding phone numbers on the internet or look for your known contact at the in the supplier organization and make sure you review how long has it been since that contact data was updated because if it was recently updated it may have been fraudulently updated as well anil or beth i mean i guess piggybacking on that right is having process and procedures and i think it's an awareness and that's you know the comment i made earlier about making sure that your employees are aware that this is a real thing and it's out there and that they should feel empowered they should question that's their job to question everything and don't feel like that you're slowing down the process and invoked all those things that you just spoke about danny but i think you know just starting with some simple things with awareness and education go a long way so there is one more thing that i would add is to have a dual custody process in place. You know, so that if there's a bank, if there's a request, if you receive a request for a vendor bank account change, one person can confirm it via phone using only the contact information either on file or independently researched. And the second employee should then verify that indeed that first verification took place. We have a two-step process in place for confirming those types of account change requests. Yeah, that's great. I mean, one example of a fraud that got through for one of our clients that you should be aware of and think about is a known contact for someone in procurement sent a bank account change request to their contact in procurement. And procurement forwarded the bank account change to the master data maintenance team. And the the master data maintenance team was supposed to do an additional check and just failed to do it. They relied on procurement saying that, that they knew the contact. Well, it turned out of course, that the supplier's email account had been compromised. And so uh, really no check had been completed. Another control that we've seen people do around email change requests is actually cut out of the email the URL component, the operating unit, organizational unit component of the email address. So for example, in my email, it's Danny Thompson at apexanalytics.com. And Apex Analytics is spelled funny. We have an X at the end of our name, but a fraudster could probably get past some of our clients if they set up an email address that had analytics spelled properly. So we've seen customers copy that part out of the email address and drop it into a search in Google at a website called Who Is or maybe GoDaddy and look at who owns the domain name of the email address. And if it's not your customer or if it was set up recently, then that check could reveal some potential fraud. Dan, that's a good point about email addresses and URLs. Is it good for companies just to buy any URL that might look similar to their own URL, prevent anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's funny. If you go to these websites that you can use to look up URLs, those websites will, if you're a fraudster and you're trying to figure out how to imitate someone else, those GoDaddy and others will just present to you other URL addresses that look very much like the one you just searched. So it's for something like, seven to eighteen dollars they can set up a fraudulent email address really really easily so yeah so companies that want to defend themselves can buy up the associated email addresses just to keep other bad actors from grabbing them so a question came in not about bank account changing changing a bank account but about someone requesting to change the street address or p.o box to intercept a check that is mailed. So what's the best way to confirm those changes? I think I'd recommend the same change control process. And of course, you can drop those addresses or PO boxes into Google Maps and see where are they? Are they residential addresses? Are they prison addresses? Is the building 
appropriate for the supplier in question. Those could also be used against the account validation solution as well. You can acquire on addresses. So, I mean, we do recommend anytime you see a change, if you're using an account validating tool to make that inquiry again, just to make sure that it's still being validated. One thing that our smart VM solution can be used for is a scrub of your existing vendor master database to look for any potential fraud scenarios that might be living in your existing vendor master. And here's a question about Apex Portal. And they wanted to know about, does it connect to SAP? And I guess the question is, you know, Danny, better, you know, what systems does Apex Portal connect to in general? Yeah, so the Apex Portal has a secure open adapter that allows integration with any ERP or other source-to-pay system or AR system that's on the market. But specifically for SAP, we have an SAP certified integration for ECC and for S4 HANA that takes care of all of the data exchange with SAP. So it not only passes invoice data back and forth or payments data back and forth, but vendor master data and bank master data. So for example, if a brand new supplier is registering using the Apex portal, then all of the information to create a fully formed vendor master is captured in the Apex portal. And once it's the approval process has completed, then in real time, the portal creates a fully formed vendor master record inside SAP. And then there's a bi-directional feed back to the portal so that any additional fields that SAP may add automatically, or if by chance something gets changed on the vendor master in SAP, then that data gets reflected in the portal so that any future changes that might be necessary on that profile happen in the portal rather than SAP. And that way, all of the controls that are are necessary get applied even for future changes. So we have a a couple more portal-related questions, and then we have some more fraud. But staying on portal, Danny, does the Apex tool utilize multi-factor authentication for both internal and external users? Yes, it does. So, you know, someone tries to log in from a new device or a new location, then multi-factor authentication is triggered to make sure that the person has access to their prior devices or prior addresses in order to make any change. Another portal question is, How are external users provisioned? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways external users get provisioned. I guess three ways. One is that a for all of your existing suppliers, we take their existing contact details and can send a message out to your existing contacts on your suppliers, letting them know that the new system is available and they can begin using it to manage their own account information. For a brand new supplier, there's an invitation process and different companies have different control processes. Some let anyone in the organization invite a new supplier and then put that through an approval process or some more tightly control which suppliers get invited. But then an invitation goes to the supplier in an email, the supplier clicks a secure link and now they change, update their passwords and now have secure access to the portal. And then the supplier can add additional users. So the supplier can have an administrator. And if they need multiple users to have access to the portal, then they can add additional users inside their organization, control which parts of the profiles and and activities that are happening in the portal can be performed by different internal users inside their organizations. So here's another, we have a lot of questions coming in. So sorry if I don't get to anything trying to stay on the topic, but uh, someone asked a very direct question. You hit on some of these, Danny, but what are the risks of the portal getting hacked? There's a slide earlier. I'm going to go back to it, but maybe you can speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. So, and this slide really has a subset of the controls that are focused around bank account changes. We have a 15-layer security 
solution in place. We have uh, certifications that demonstrate our ongoing security of the portal. And also, you know, we do additional things that aren't described here, the approved lists and unapproved lists, the security solutions, data protections, firewalls, etc. If the entire database were to get hacked, then there would be a vulnerability there. But we have active monitoring of the entire platform. It's in a very secure environment. And we're just happy to, to share the details of that with any company's IT department that might be interested in knowing more. Anil, this question is for you. And it's about the slide said 80% of companies are focused on end-user education, and with fraudsters becoming more sophisticated, is this the best place to focus on anti-fraud efforts? So is education the best place to do it with end-user, or what are some other places that could be effective? Depending, you know, if your users are aware and educated on what is happening out there in regards to the different fraud schemes, they're going to be that much more vigilant when it comes to performing, you know, their tasks. That, I think, is indeed a, has to be a very crucial element of any multifaceted fraud prevention strategy. Again, that is one approach, okay, because these are, in a sense, you know, the boots on the ground folks that are performing the daily tasks of sending out payments, etc. So they really need to be kept in the loop in terms of what are the new schemes and trends that the fraudsters are using to access systems and initiate unauthorized payments. Again, just one step. There are other steps that you see on the screen, certainly having robust internal company policies, you know, including having policies in place that require callbacks for any payment requests or vendor account changes, having robust internal controls. I gave the example of some companies no longer require, no longer accepting emailed payment requests um, and instead requiring special forms for payments. Again, fraud education is just one component of that multifaceted approach. Certainly there are technology solutions that we just discussed that complement these other steps. Thank you, Neil. So another question came in and uh, Beth, this is for you. And Danny, I think you might have some commentary on it. This is mainly a U.S.-based you know, shared database or validation service. For those in the EU or other international countries, what is something similar or you know, are there any other services similar to this? And maybe, Beth, you could speak to, I'll put up the slide where you're talking about the shared database and why it is a U.S.-based database. Yeah, so it is a U.S.-based database today. I don't believe that Early Warning has any immediate plans to expand that outside the country. You know, I think a lot of this goes from making sure that the quality of the data and the security of the data are what drives a lot of that decision today. So, so currently, it's not. I don't like. I said I don't see anything for the foreseeable future that this database would be expanding into global opportunities. And Danny, do you have any thoughts on some other solutions that they might use outside of uh, account validation services? Yeah. So outside the U.S., we found two reliable sources, one in Sweden and one in India. We've also had conversations about solutions that are available for the U.K. and Ireland and Poland, but we haven't found those to be comprehensive enough to really meet the needs of our customers. So we're continuing to look for other resources like this. And as soon as we find out about them, we're going to be implementing them in the solution. And if you guys, if anyone on the webinar becomes aware of another international solution, please let us know and we'll look for ways to integrate it into the solution for you and for any other of our clients. Great. I have a couple of questions just trying to read through them, but someone asked, they're asking about data quality. Sometimes the vendor data quality isn't perfect. So maybe it would be good that what data has to be perfect data about the supplier for this to work and validate correctly. So the, the information that sits in the National Shared Database is what is shared directly from the financial institutions. And so they do use some, what they call fuzzy logic, to be able to 
capture situations where you might have phonetic spellings. You know, we're talking about the analytics, the interesting spelling for you all to catch double consonants, phonetic spelling. You know, an individual is a good example might be nicknames, Robert, Rob, Bobby, Bob. That would all be considered a match. So they do do some of that. It's proprietary algorithm, so they don't share the secret sauce behind it, but they do do a little bit about that. At the end of the day, you might wind up getting that it doesn't match. And that may be, if it comes back as no match, that may be an opportunity for you to do that additional due diligence, which could be a good thing, right? It could be in the case that we were talking about Danny earlier, where somebody's spelling it correctly, or how we would, if you were talking about analytics in general, not associated with the name, which could be a variant. So you could have a fraud situation there. So it may be that you need to do additional due diligence and it may at the end still be good. The the information may be correct, but it's that opportunity for you to make sure that you've got correct information. So I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Someone asked about Brazil specifically. Danny, any uh, rumblings, any rumors that there'll be a validation like this in Brazil? Yeah, I haven't had any conversations around an opportunity in Brazil, but uh, we just haven't heard of it yet. Great. And someone, this is kind of a longer question, so I'll try to make it concise to the point or actually capture their point, which is if uh, a supplier's staff changes, and so if they have staff change, how do you validate that this person, this new person is a legitimate person working for the supplier or, you know, how do we differentiate them from a potentially uh, bad actor? And Danny, I'll maybe you can speak to it with regard to the portal. Yeah. I mean, I think ideally what you do is reach out to your known contact and confirm it with them. Even if they've left the company, they're likely to want to confirm it with you. And then if you have any other secondary contacts in that supplier organization, then you can confirm it with them. And for example, I mean, if you have no other contacts, you can just look up the company in Google and ask for HR and just ask for a confirmation at that point, or maybe ask for the finance department of the supplier organization. Beth, Neil, any comments on how they can protect about different or new staff members or new people if there's turnover in a supplier? or even in a customer. Yeah, I was right along the same long thoughts as Danny is that you know you need to start with somebody something you know. Start with the knowns, start there. And if you don't, then some of the other resources that Danny talked about I think would be appropriate to try to help make sure you've got the right entity. Great. And Anil, I don't know, did, did you have something to say there? I thought I might have heard you. No, no, I am good. I said it was agreeing with what that and Danny just said. Great, great. So I, I just have one more question. If anyone has any other questions, please send them in. And this is really about, you know, we're talking about protecting its payment fraud that is going to happen or potentially happening in the future and setting this type of validation up. What are some flags that there were fraudulent payments in the past? You know, is there anything that could be done to look at payments that were made uh, over the past, you know, year, particularly around COVID and transitions that companies have gone through during that period? So, Danny, I'll I'll give it to you first. Well, there are a couple of things that you could do. One is you could just look for cases where bank account information was changed and big payments went out. But that could be kind of difficult. One thing that we do, one solution that we provide for our clients is a solution we call Fraud Detect. And it looks at... I think the numbers are 127 different characteristics of the supplier record and of transaction data, boils it into 25 fraud risk flags, and then consolidates it into a single composite fraud risk score. And suppliers that have a high composite fraud risk score are ones that ought to be scrutinized more closely. Uh, Those characteristics are not only things like, is the address in a suspicious location, but are the invoice numbers that have been processed in an order that makes sense? And, you know, for example, are they out of sequence, where later invoice is a smaller number than an earlier invoice? Were they sequential in that you got invoice 1001, 2, 3, 4, and 5 over the course of the year. That would be strange because that would suggest you're the supplier's only vendor or only customer. And then there are also more sophisticated analytics that apply things like Benford's rule, which 
does a really good job of identifying numbers that humans make up rather than numbers that computers make up. Look it up if you're curious about it, Benford, B-E-N-F-O-R-D. So through a mix of transaction analysis, payment analysis, and supplier characteristics, we flag up potential fraud cases. Thanks for talking about fraud detect. Seth, Anil, would you think there are any flags about past payments that are fraudulent that people can think about? I mean, part of the account validation service algorithms, they do look at transaction activity. So there's a little bit of that that's built in as you build your decision business rules for the service that can help detect where they're seeing unusual patterns of activity. So, You know, Matthew, I thought of one thing that might be fairly easy for people to look for that is a very likely indicator of fraud is if a supplier has a series of transactions, especially their first few transactions that are a lower amount, and then they have a leap in the amount of payments that are going out, that would suggest in lots of cases that could be insider fraud, where someone is just probing the controls of their own organization, and then they find a process, a vendor that works and a process that works, and then they ramp it up after they have early successful low dollar tests. So that's something you can look for. And another thing you can look for is a series of transactions that are just below the dollar thresholds that trigger additional approvals. So for example, some companies say managers can approve invoices up to $25,000. If it's above $25,000, it's got to go to their boss. Well, if you have a vendor that's got a lot of payments in the twenty-three dollars to $25,000 range, that might suggest some fraud. We have hit our time. There's a couple more questions that we're not going to go through right now due to time, but we will follow up with you and get those answers to you over the next day or so. And I really appreciate everyone on the panel today. I thought this was a great discussion and I love that there was a lot of questions coming in because it's, you know, the topic is, you know, people are thinking about it and there's more and more stories in the news. So thank you everyone. And we will be having a webinar more or less every other week or every week here at Apex. So please go to our website to look for upcoming webinars and everyone on the panel, everyone joining, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you.